0: Welcome to Clarity, hosted by me, Larry McCann. I'm downright giddy. If you haven't heard the news, Les Moonves, the CEO of CBS, was fired. But wait, there's more. Jeff Fager, the former chairman of CBS News, And until very recently, the executive producer of 60 Minutes was also fired. Both of them faced an onslaught of sexual misconduct allegations rivaling that of Harvey Weinstein. That's not a club you want to be in. We're going to cover that story in greater detail later. We're also going to interview the wonderful Nadia Anwar. In other news, I'm finally on Twitter. Please add us at M-A-C-C-A-N-N-U-M. That's at McCannum. I'll say it again. N U M. Unfortunately, Clarity Levy is taken by someone who spends an inordinate amount of time on Twitter. And Clarity Podcast is taken by some vastly inferior podcast. I wish them the worst. But right now, Will has something he wants to say. All right, Will. What is it? You got, like, a minute.
1: Well, I was listening to some of the older episodes, and something stood out to me. When you were interviewing Piana, in episode 12 or 13, I'm not sure which, you mentioned that you had seemingly lost the ability to cry. It's true. I honestly can't remember the last time I did cry. Well, we have that in common. The last time I cried was 12 years ago.
0: What was it that caused you to cry?
1: The cat I grew up with, kind of a surrogate brother, he died and I wasn't able to go back east to be there for him, so that hit me pretty hard. What do you think it is that has suppressed this emotion in you? I'm really not sure. I try to be as in touch with my feelings as possible. I can't think of any reasons off the top of my head why I feel like I shouldn't cry, but I do feel a reservation whenever I get close to it. I had a close friend die a number of years ago, and I almost cried then, but there was almost a part of me that resisted it. Didn't want to embrace crying like that. The same was true with when my grandma died. I wanted to cry, and honestly, I felt a little guilty for not crying, but I never actually did. Has anyone shamed you for crying? Not that I can think of. My now wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, saw me crying 12 years ago. She didn't shame me. I also don't think I have any strong issues about sharing something like that with her. So I don't think it's that I'm afraid of people seeing me cry. I'm not even crying in privacy.
0: I gotta say, I I relate to that a bit. I don't know if it's something cultural. Men in America are absolutely discouraged from crying. It may be changing in certain areas, but I think it's undeniable. Our version of masculinity does not include weeping. Unlike, say, ancient Rome or Greece. And to be perfectly honest... That's probably extremely unhealthy. To me, I look at it like, maybe you don't want to take out that pancreas or appendix. There may be cases where you do, but I don't think medically, we understand how all these things work in concert. And in a similar fashion, crying seems to be as big a part of us as laughter. So when you suppress that side of things, it may have lingering repercussions and possibly might explain my tendency towards anger. That's
1: something that we have in common as well. I really struggle to control my temper. I always have. And you may be right. Maybe there is some kind of connection. Maybe because I'm not releasing emotions through crying, they get bottled up and I have to express them in another way, like lashing out or getting frustrated. Have you ever seen your dad cry? No, I I don't think I have. I can't think of a single moment where he would have. That might be part of it. Do you think he's cried? I'm pretty sure he has since I've been born. It's just something he's never shown to me. I'm not resenting him for it. I think, again, there's a lot at work, both how he was raised and what our culture instills. I'd also hazard to guess that my Puritan background might have stifled those kind of things. And as far as my mother, I've seen her cry one time. So maybe this is just some kind of family thing.
0: Well, buddy, if you ever need a shoulder, find someone else. I'm just teasing you. I want you to be honest and feel like this is a safe space. But not if you mess things up. Everything better run tip-top, you hear me? Okay, Larry. Good talk. And now, we're going to jump into the interview segment. Please stay tuned for our main story on Les Moonves. Welcome to Clarity. Can you please introduce yourself?
2: Hey, I'm Nadia Anwar. I'm an actress, writer, comedian from Chicago, but I've been out in L.A. for like nine years, so I'm kind of from L.A. too.
0: You're checking your notes on this very personal information.
2: (laughs) No, I'm looking for the notes.
0: Uh, Fair enough. Uh, My apologies.
2: (laughs) I know where I'm from, Larry.
0: (laughs) Well, it's a pleasure to meet you, Nadia. Thank you so much for coming in.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: I was told you had an audition earlier today.
2: Yes, I did. I had a callback for a commercial where I just had to laugh the whole time. (laughs) It was really challenging.
0: Can you tell me about that process? I've been on the other side of it, but I've never done an audition.
2: Well, commercial auditions are very about your look, I think, for the most part. So if they're looking for diversity, they're going to call me in. They want someone brown. The commercials are just kind of like, bring yourself to the table. So I've had a hard time with booking commercials because I always think I need to be acting. (laughs) If I do get a callback, I'll go in and be over the top about stuff. And they're like, okay, thanks. So for this one today, my boyfriend was like, just be yourself, please. (laughs) And so today I didn't use my high voice. I used my regular lower register voice and I was myself. It went well, finally.
0: (laughs) That's wonderful. I hope you book it. Thank you. So, before we learn more about you, here at Clarity, we like to ask each guest to define feminism in their own words. Can you please share your definition?
2: Feminism to me is freedom, freedom of choice, freedom to do whatever a woman wants to do. That means with her body, with her way she carries herself, with the words she says, it's being able to just walk into a room and not feel self-conscious about what this man's going to think or anyone's going to think. When I was looking at this question that you wrote, I was thinking about it. It's like walking to a room with your vagina hanging. <laughs> like guys walk into their rooms with their dick swinging. It's like, I'm going to walk into my room with my vagina swinging. Like, I don't care. <laughs> I have every right to be here. I have a voice that needs to be heard and I'm not going to Keep quiet for anyone. That's what I feel feminism is. It's a vast definition that can be so many things. And there's no right or wrong answer to that question. I feel like some women get on each other for it. And the point is not to get on each other. I think women need to be unified and make sure that we all are expressing love towards each other so that we can take over. (laughs) Not over, but we can have more power if we're all against each other all the time, there's no way we're gonna succeed. So, feminism to me is having that power and sharing that power with each other as women and owning our voices and owning our vaginas.
0: I love that definition, (laughs) that was wonderful. I'm starting to become a little more aware of what you're talking about. Currently, women have to behave so differently than men. Socially, in the workplace, You just aren't given that same freedom where men can pretty much act however they want. They can go into any place and feel safe. And that's clearly not the case for women.
2: No, no, not at all. It still happens. It's happening all the time. But we're trying to put a lid on it, and it's going to take time, I think. But yeah, the more people like you are noticing it, the more men that are noticing it, they're more aware of their surroundings, they're more aware of our feelings, I think that that's important. And it's not just about our feelings, it's about being a human being. You should just treat human beings normally. It's so frustrating to be in a workplace and dudes will be like, oh, you look so pretty. Why don't you smile? Don't tell me to do any of that. And actually, you're not someone I'm sleeping with and you're not someone that I'm dating. So you don't need to tell me that I'm pretty. I get that we should be able to accept compliments, but I don't go up to guys and be like, you're so cute. (laughs) Like, that would be awkward. But it's okay for men to do it? That's weird.
0: I agree. There's a double standard. And also, most men seem unable to get past that. I'm paying her a compliment. Mm -hmm. They don't understand how it can be inappropriate, even if the intentions, oh, I just want her to be happy about herself. I want her to feel good.
2: Yeah. We already feel good. (laughs) And if we need validation, we will turn to the people we trust. Not some stranger man who wants to pay a compliment. And I know that men get offended by this, but there's no need to get offended by that. It's just normal. Look at your sister. Do you want some random man complimenting your sister constantly? It's, it's awkward.
0: I 100% agree. Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> I think it's invaluable. And I think men need to listen to that. They yeah. need to really hear the message you just said. Yeah. And somehow that communication is not getting through. And I know many people for many years have been really pushing that issue.
2: I know, it's very unfortunate.
0: (laughs) (laughs) To make a tangent a little bit, you already mentioned a little bit about yourself. You're from Chicago, but what are some of your passions?
2: I have so many passions, family, food. Food is one of my biggest passions. I love trying new food. I love cooking new food. I love eating. I think that food is so amazing. <laughs> Whenever I say that, people are like, oh, so do you cook? It's like, yeah, I cook to the best of my ability. I'm not like a chef, but lasagna is my favorite dish <laughs> because it's so easy to make and it's so good. <laughs> also, I'm Indian, so I love Indian food. Indian food is my favorite food. I'm not the greatest Indian food cook, but I can cook like chicken korma and it's really, really good.
0: I just had that last night by Did you <laughs> random chance.
2: Awesome. Was it good? It
0: was pretty good. I've had better.
2: Okay, okay.
0: If you ever are so generous to share your cooking,
2: absolutely. absolutely, I would love to try it. Absolutely. I can definitely bring that over. It's really, really good. It's not easy to mess up.
0: I think you're selling yourself a little short here.
2: <laughs> well, if you went in the Indian community, they'd be rolling their eyes right now. <laughs> They're like, okay, so she can make corn malt. Congratulations. We set our standards really high. <laughs> As you should. Yeah. Are there
0: any Indian restaurants you recommend in the Los Angeles area?
2: Yes. It's so weird. When I moved here, I missed Chicago. And I missed the food because Chicago has the best food, in my opinion. In L.A., I couldn't find the right Indian food place for years. But as of recently, I've been enjoying Indian food more out here than in Chicago. And I know I'm going to get berated for this, but I have been. Crown of India is one of my favorite places on Santa Monica. Anabarg in Los Feliz. Very good Indian food. And I have to say, when I went back to Chicago, the Indian food wasn't as good as it was when I went to those two places. So Chicago, step up your game. You got a little too comfortable, (laughs) and now your food. I don't want to be rude, but it's a little whitewashed. (laughs) Devon's this famous Indian street where it's pretty much Little India and Little Pakistan. And one restaurant that is my ultimate favorite, the past few times I've been back there, has been whacked. I'm not gonna call it out, but it's the most famous restaurant on Devon, so people know what I'm talking about.
0: <laughs> we name names here. Feel free to shame whoever you want.
2: <laughs> I can't I can't shame it because it's so mean and it's part of my culture, so I don't wanna be mean, but step up your game, most famous restaurant on Devon. You know who you are.
0: I gotta say from the outside in, Chicago is not a city I associate with a vibrant Indian community. Does it have one?
2: Yes, yes, huge. We have this section, It's Devon. It goes like three miles. It's basically just nothing but brown people. Chicago, like LA, is segregated. So out here, you have your Filipino town, you have your Korea town, you have Chinatown. Chicago is very similar to that. But there are also a lot of brown people in the suburbs because they're all rich and they're all doctors and they all make a lot of money. So they all live in like the nice parts of Chicago or I would say Illinois. So, like Northern Illinois, there's very many brown people. My mom and I and my sisters, we lived in the city, so that's where I got a little hood in me. But (laughs) when I went to college, my mom moved to Skokie, but that's really on the cusp of the city still.
0: I don't want to just lump you into categories, but you are an actor.
2: Yes, I'm an actor. Is that something you want to
0: discuss right now, or do you want to talk more about other parts of who you are and your passions?
2: Oh, I don't mind speaking about being an actor. I love talking about that stuff. That's why I'm an actor.
0: (laughs) That's good to hear. That's reassuring. (laughs) What got you interested in it in the first place?
2: Oh, man, it's loaded, that question. I've been thinking about that a lot, too. And I have to say that when I was growing up, I was watching Barney. I was, I don't know, five or six or seven. I don't remember. But I was watching Barney and looking at them. And I think there was maybe an Asian or someone, but I could be wrong. But there was an Asian and probably a black. But (laughs) it wasn't diverse. And I did not see myself. I don't remember. I could be completely wrong. They could have all been white. I don't remember because it was so long ago. But I do remember watching it and being like, huh, I would love to see myself up there. And what they're doing is so fun. And I just want to be next to Barney. (laughs) And I want to freaking do what they're doing. And I remember my sister would record all the episodes of Barney. And I would be like, I'm going to do that one day. And my sister was like, okay, well, you can't because you live here and there's no way. And mom would never let you be on TV. And those people, they become crazy because that was an era of childhood starts becoming whack like Michael Jackson. I don't know if the Olsen twins were there yet, but they were getting there, I feel like. But I was like, no, I want to do that. What got me into acting later on in life, it was, I think I liked being the center of attention because I was the youngest, but also because I would watch TV and not see myself. And I would feel so alone, if that makes sense. When you would watch it, you'd feel like social isolation, legitimately social isolation, because you go to school and there's not that many Indian or Pakistani people. I mean, there was like three of us. You go to parties and you're surrounded by a bunch of Indian and Pakistani people, but they are rich and I was never rich. And I didn't have my dad, so I was always looked at like, oh, she's a problem. She has problems. Her parents, they got a divorce. They didn't get a divorce, but they were separated. And Oh, poor her, poor her. So I always felt isolated in that sense, and I always just wanted to belong somewhere. And so I knew that if I was a famous star, (laughs) I would feel accepted. In short, the reason I got into acting was because I wanted to see more of us out there and make young brown girls not feel so alone and feel accepted and feel like, oh, okay, if they're watching TV or movies, they're normal. They're not crazy people that only speak an accent. Cause guess what? I grew up in America and I don't have an accent. Maybe my mom does, but I don't. So (laughs) there's a lot of things that got me into acting, but that was a big part of it.
0: One story I heard was Cal Penn, he got his big break in Van Wilder. And it's exactly what you're talking about where he's playing this Indian exchange student. He's not an Indian American. He's speaking in basically the stereotypical accent. And I think he's talked about how that troubled him as well.
2: It's hard because I know that our family has accents and I know that our parents do. And there's nothing wrong with it. I'm not against the accent. It's more of the fact that I grew up around a bunch of American kids and we were all American. And we were cast aside from our families because, oh, they're so American. So our families are like, Where's your culture? Speak your language. And then you go around your friends and your friends are like, oh, you're so Gandhi because Gandhi was the insult. Back then you're like, they're calling me Gandhi at school. They think I'm so fob. Fob is fresh off the boat. And then I go around my family and they think I'm too American. So where do I go? Where am I? Okay. Who's going to love me for me? Because My parents made the choice to come out here. My dad was in the military. My mom married him because he was in the military. They met the same day that they got married, and they came out here for opportunities. And yeah, I didn't have to grow up in India, and I didn't have to face the stuff that a lot of women have to face in India, but out here, this is my circumstance, so I'm going to live out my truth, and I feel like the accent is not my truth. (laughs) And I've booked things doing the accent out here, and I've booked things speaking my language because... I do have a second language, but my primary language is English. (laughs) I can speak it, you know.
0: (laughs) And I think that a lot of people get caught up on that. They might even be surprised. Oh, you speak such good English.
2: Oh, yeah. But they also get pissed off, too. I remember when I was younger and they would be like, oh, so you're not that Indian. So you don't respect your country. You don't respect where you come from. And I'm like, oh, I do respect where I come from because I was born and raised in Chicago. (laughs) So I come from America. I have nothing against India. I love India, and I've been there once. I didn't grow up with a lot of money to just go back. I know a lot of brown girls and brown guys who went back and forth to India every year. My mom's a social worker, and she's been scarred by India. She hates India so much. She's going to hate me for saying it out loud to people, but she does. She hates it because she went through a lot of trauma in India, so she will never go back. It's been like 33 years, hence the reason I've never gone back. I've gone back once for a wedding, and that was it. I love my culture, and I love where my parents are from, but I also love where I'm from.
0: And like you're saying, people are eager to put you into one category. You're both. You're Indian, and you're American. Those two don't have to be mutually exclusive. No. I think this younger generation is really seeing that, where we're blending cultures, and that's wonderful.
2: Yeah, because we're all people, and we're starting to see that we're all people. Well, God, I'm really divulging a lot of information, but... My mom would always say, don't end up with an Indian guy because they're never going to understand you. And I was like, Mom, that's so narrow-minded. But a lot of Indian people, they come from very strict backgrounds. And my mom and my family is very liberal. So I do a lot of things that people are like, wow, you don't act Indian. And I'm like, what does that even mean? How can you act Indian? That's so narrow-minded. I can be Indian and I can be American and I can wear a crop top or I can go out drinking because I'm living my life and that's what I've been surrounded by and that's what I know. So there's nothing wrong with it. That doesn't make me less than, that doesn't make me less of a person that should be respected and loved.
0: I agree. And thank you for being so honest and willing to share these things. I truly appreciate it. (laughs) It actually, I tacked on a question where, again, from the outsider's perspective, I've heard that a lot of Indian families really don't want interracial dating or marriage to happen. Yeah. That may be a stereotype. And to me, it's intriguing that your mother would have the opposite reaction.
2: Well, I think with my mom, she had terrible marriage. My dad was schizophrenic and they didn't tell her. So as you can imagine, when you're getting married that same day and all she's thinking is, I'm going to go to America and I'm going to have the best life. And not knowing that this guy has mental problems. How do you deal with that when you leave and you come to a different country away from your whole family? My mom was the first one to come here because my dad was in the military. Her brother got married that same day, and they just did both my mom and her brother the same day in the same room, like so sad, but they just did that whole thing together. She was the first one to come here, so she sponsored all of her sisters and brothers pretty much. One brother is in Canada, and they're so happy much happier than us in America. (laughs) Don't call me an American hater because I'm not. I love my country, but let's be honest. Canadians, they're a lot happier than us. So she came out here. She sponsored all her sisters, but it took years for that to happen. She was out here by herself, and I don't think my mom ever had a boyfriend. So when her and my dad had problems, I don't think she really knew what to do, and she was all here by herself alone. I don't know. I forgot what you asked me.
0: No, again, thank you for sharing all these things. To me, it's fascinating. There's no wrong answers here. And we have a list of questions, but feel free to go wherever you want. Yeah, I mean, the hardship of going to a foreign country with a stranger, essentially. Pretty much. I can't even begin to fathom that. Mm -hmm. And then having, like you said, mental issues on top of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, She must be an incredibly strong woman.
2: Oh, my God. She is the strongest woman I know. She did her best, and that's all we can say. She did as much as she could. She was working two jobs. She got her degree. All the while, she's dealing with this man who has mental problems who's paranoid, schizophrenic, like, you're poisoning my food. You're doing this. You're doing that. And that was another thing. Back then, they barely talked about mental health, especially in America, but everywhere. So she was just like, I don't know what's going on with this guy. They would separate, then they would get back together. They would separate, get back together. I'm 10 years apart from my sisters. My sisters are a year apart, barely a year apart, and then I'm like 9 or 10 years after them. They must have separated and then thought that this was going to work again. But again, my mom never knew what a relationship was. I mean, she saw her parents and that was it in In India, not out here where she's been in America for how long. She doesn't know what it's like to be out in this country and have a relationship and who knows what she was going through, I'll never know, but all I know is that she did her best. She did her ultimate best with me because she was on her feet by then. So, I'm grateful. Love you, mom.
0: <laughs> how do you think her experiences have shaped how you view relationships?
2: Oh, man. I think it's shaped it 100%. I mean, she verbally tells me that I'm not going to get along with Indian guys. I dated Indian guys, I've dated a Pakistani guy and Yeah, they never really understood why I was the way I was. I know I'm going to get backlash for this, but it's not an insult. It's more of who I am versus who they are. And that's all that is. Now, everything's changing. Men are becoming more open-minded. Just people are becoming more open-minded. Not growing up with my dad, too, shaped my relationships because I was always dating men and looking for, like, a father figure because I never had my dad. My dad left when I was five. So it was very hard to be in a relationship and not know what a normal relationship is, how a man should treat you. But at the ripe age of 32, I finally get it, and I'm in one of the best relationships of my life for three years.
0: (laughs) What has helped you overcome those obstacles, especially dealing with a father figure like you have?
2: I think hitting rock bottom out here in LA really was like, okay, I need to stop. I need something to change. So I took some time to myself, did soul searching, read a lot of self-help books and realized what my value is, what my worth is. And that goes for my career as well. It's been a long process for me personally because I'd never believed in myself before. So now, ever since I've been in a good relationship, and I know that you shouldn't rely on someone to lift you up. And that's not even what the case is. It's more of this person came into my life and helped me realize what I'm worth because he comes from a solid family. I mean, his parents did divorce, but it wasn't the way it was with my parents. He saw his parents. He was loved by both of them. And so he really brought that to me and showed me what it could be to love yourself.
0: That's wonderful. I'm so glad you found that. Thank you. Are you willing to talk about your boyfriend at all? Sure. So strange coincidence. (laughs) Yeah. Your boyfriend is from a relatively small town city. Would you call it a city?
2: I think it is a city, right? I think technically, uh, yeah. but I mean, let's but be honest here. it's tiny, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, in
0: that, we'll be generous, city <laughs> happens to be very close to where Will's mom currently lives.
2: Really? Where does Will's mom live?
0: Just south of that in Westport, New York.
2: Oh my gosh, how interesting. That is great. Yes, he's from Plattsburgh. Nobody knows where that is, but it is beautiful. And I just went this past summer for the second time and... I was in an Uber and he was taking me to meet up with Xander, my boyfriend, because they were playing golf. And the Uber driver was like, I got to get out of here. I can't wait to move. I'm going to move to Boston, I think he said. I said, oh, okay. well, you don't like it here? He's like, no, I love it. It's a great city. And the crime rate is so low that you could just leave your doors unlocked. It's like that. But there's not a lot of opportunity to become real successful unless you grew up with old money or, you know, connections. And so it's not the greatest place to branch out and become this successful, big person that you would want to be if you had those ambitions. But it is a beautiful place. And I actually tell my boyfriend, I'm like, I kind of want to raise our kids there. <laughs> city life is hard. I mean, all I know is city life. So a change for me would be nice, just living in a small town. I know that sounds weird to a lot of people, but when you grow up around the city your whole life, you kind of like the quiet.
0: Will's actually been telling me the same thing.
2: Really? Yeah, he
0: too seems to be someone who assumed he'd always be in a city. Yeah. And now is dealing with the inner turmoil of turning his back on that, ending up on a ranch or something somewhere.
2: Oh my gosh. That sounds so peaceful, right?
0: Someday, maybe.
2: Yeah. Still a lot to do. Yeah, exactly. That's the problem. There's too much to do, and you can't do it out there.
0: (laughs) It is beautiful countryside out in the Adirondacks, but one thing it lacks is diversity.
2: Oh, yeah. Because I grew up and I was always feeling like I was isolated, I think I've gotten used to being isolated. I know that sounds depressing and dreary. For me, if I was cast aside again, it's normal to me. It's sad, though. It is not diverse. But Xander's brother does have an Indian friend. One boy who's Indian out there. Just one, but he's there. That's a stunt. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Xander is white, correct?
2: Yes, Sorry if I haven't made that clear yet. Yeah, he's white. I don't know what the politically correct thing to do anymore is. Can we say white or do we say Caucasian? Cracker. (laughs) It took Xander a while. It's been three years and now he's finally coming around to where I'm coming from. It's hard for a straight white male to understand why I'm so angry all the time about the way things are. A lot of times he'll be like, you're just overreacting. You're being crazy. But as of late, I don't know if it's because I've stopped beating the dead horse And now it's finally sunk in that he's seeing it everywhere. But when we were watching the Emmys, he was getting pissed. When they kept giving the awards to Marvelous, Mademoiselle, whatever the hell that name is. Listen, great. A woman wrote that show. She produced that show. That's awesome. It's a female lead. But it's an all-white cast. And it's all-white. And it swept the Emmys. It's just infuriating because Atlanta is one of the best shows I've ever seen in my entire life. Season 2 was even better than season one which is so difficult to do and yet they didn't win it's kind of like what are we watching here we're not all watching the same thing i can tell you that much and it was nice to see xander share that anger with me for once not for once he's starting to come around i'm not trying to throw him under the bus <laughs> but it's all he knows
0: i personally have no idea what this term means but will wants me to ask you this okay the kids apparently using it is xander awoke bae?
2: Uh, No, I'm not going to give him that because he has been difficult this whole time. But like I said, he's been starting to come around. And I think watching the Emmys, he was definitely woke Bay. It was like, whoa, he's getting pissed. And then not to mention, and I know Michael Che called him out for it and it was amazing. But when Jeff Daniels thinks his horse for like four minutes and they actually let him go on. I don't know how long are you up there. But it felt like four minutes that Jeff Daniels was thinking his horse. Awesome. Good for you. But people are dying to be up there. And people would be so grateful to win that award and be trendsetters for people of color that they can do this and that this career is not that outside of the box that you can't do it, that you're just like, oh, well, I don't know anyone. I'm not going to do this. For me, I'm doing it so I can pave the way for other little girls that are brown to be like, oh, cool. This is an actual thing that I can do. I'm trying to make other brown people feel okay about being in this country because we all deserve to be here. And entertainment industry, where everyone watches movies pretty much, everyone watches TV, everyone listens to music, you're heavily influenced by that. Growing up and not seeing myself was so hard for me. But is Xander awoke, Bay? He's coming around. I'm not going to give him that title just yet. He has a lot more work to do. <laughs>
0: Can you define it for me? I'm still pretty unclear on what it means. I think
2: Woke Bay is the way Xander was behaving when we were watching the Emmys, pretty much getting real pissed off when every white person won. Woke Bay, I think, is someone who understands culture and understands diversity and inclusion and understands that it's not there yet and we have so much more work to do. When you're writing a project, including people of color in that project, whether it's behind the scenes or in front of the camera, At this point, there's so many people that are white that are in charge, and unless they start integrating people of color, it's just constantly going to be the same stories, same subjects, same thing, and I'm so bored of watching it. Woke Bay is that person who is knowledgeable about all the stuff that's going on right now with people of color, with diversity, and the problems that we have. It's not even just in the entertainment world. It's everywhere. I'm not familiar with how it affects other people's careers, but I know it does. I know that my cousin was up for a job and she was more than qualified and they gave it to a white girl, probably because she's white. And because white people think that, well, they can relate more. No, you have to integrate more of us in there because we're part of this country too. And if my cousin could do the job just as well, or even better, give her the shot.
0: I gotta admit, I'm a little excited right now. Our main story this episode covers the disgraced former CEO of the CBS Corporation, Les Moonves. You might be asking, why am I excited about this? Aren't all sorts of horrible details coming to light? Well, that's true. These allegations have led to significant change. That said, I do warn you that the following may be graphic at times. As far as my sources, I'm almost exclusively drawing from two articles by Ronan Ferro, both published in the New Yorker. The first was published in the August 6th issue. Nearly a month later, Ronan followed up with another article published September 9th. I'll try to make it clear what information is coming from which article, but I have the benefit of combining the two. To better illustrate the pattern of abuse, I'm going to put the victim's testimonies into chronological order. Ronan opens his first article by writing, For more than 20 years, Leslie Moonves has been one of the most powerful media executives in America. As the chairman and CEO of CBS Corporation, he oversees shows ranging from 60 Minutes to The Big Bang Theory. Will kind of looks like Sheldon, by the way. His portfolio includes the premium cable channel Showtime, the publishing house Simon & Shuster, and a streaming service, CBS All Access. Moonves, who is 68, has a reputation for canny hiring and project selection. The Wall Street Journal recently called him a TV programming wizard. The Hollywood Reporter dubbed him a Wall Street hero. In the tumultuous field of network television, He has enjoyed rare longevity as a leader. Last year, according to filings with the Securities and Exchange Commission, he earned nearly $70 million, making him one of the highest-paid corporate executives in the world. He's also been connected to the hashtag MeToo movement, unfortunately. Not only has he been outspoken on women's issues, but in December, he helped found the Commission on Eliminating Sexual Harassment and Advancing Equality in the Workplace which is shared by Anita Hill. At a conference in November, Moonves said, I think it's important that a company's culture will not allow for this. And that's the thing that's far-reaching. There's a lot we're learning. There's a lot we didn't know. You don't say less. You don't say. Faro continues, But Moonvez's private actions belie his public statements. Six women who had professional dealings with him told me that between the 1980s and the late 80s, Moonves sexually harassed them. Four described forcible touching or kissing during business meetings and what they said appeared to be a practice routine. Two told me that Moonves physically intimidated them or threatened to derail their careers. All said that he became cold or hostile after they rejected his advances and that they believed their careers suffered as a result. To give you context on the timeline, Farrell, much like he did with Harvey Weinstein, wrote a revealing expose, detailing the cases of all these six women. And unfortunately, the members of the board, most of them appointed by Movez himself, were slow to do anything. Apparently, they were even negotiating a $120 million severance package. So Ronan, forcing the issue, released six more allegations. And like in most of these cases, this creates a power structure that enables abuse. Ronan points out that 19 current and former employees told Ronan that Jeff Fager, the former chairman of CBS News and the current executive producer of 60 Minutes, allowed harassment in the division. It's top-down this culture of older men who have all this power and you are nothing. The company is shielding lots of bad behavior. In a statement, Moonves says, throughout my time at CBS, we have promoted a culture of respect and opportunity for all employees and have consistently found success elevating women to top executive positions. I recognize that there were times decades ago when I may have made some women uncomfortable by making advances. Those were mistakes and I regret them immensely. But I always understood and respected and abided by the principle that no means no. And I've never misused my position to harm or hinder anyone's career. This is a time when we are all appropriately focused on how we help improve our society and we at CBS are committed to being part of the solution. According to CBS, there have been no misconduct claims and no settlements against Moonves during his 24 years at the network. With Ronan's help, I hope to prove beyond a reasonable doubt how full of shit Moonves is. The first testimony is from Dina Kergo, who won an Emmy as a writer for The Tracy Ullman Show. She and her sister and producing partner, Julie Kergo, met with Moonves and others in the early 80s about a television deal. We left the meeting very confident we had an overall deal with Leslie, Kergo told Ferrell. The sisters told their agent to expect an offer from Moonves. Instead, shortly after Kurgo got home, Moonves called her directly. He said... That was a great meeting. Now we have to go out to dinner. Kurgo replied that she and Julie would be happy to have dinner with him. He said, No, just you and me. You're very expensive, and I need to know you're worth it. Kurgo says, I was sort of in shock, and I said, Well, Leslie, I don't think your wife would appreciate us having that kind of dinner. Moonves coldly ended the conversation. Kurgo and her sister never heard from Moonves again. Afterward, Kurgo's agents told her, They had received reports that she had a reputation for being difficult to work with. Kergo reflected upon it by saying, it's very insidious what he did. (music) The next accuser is Janet Jones. Farrell writes, In the spring of 1985, Janet Jones was attempting to break into the industry as a writer. Moonves, at the time, was a vice president at 20th Century Fox. It was Jones's first pitch meeting in Hollywood. When Jones arrived, many employees were leaving for the day, but Moonvez's assistant was there. This seems to be a technique that Moonves shares with Harvey Weinstein. Isolate the victim, but make them feel there's at least one other person present. As the meeting started, Moonves surprised her by asking if she wanted a glass of wine. She declined, sat down on the couch, and began pitching her screenplay. Janet told Pharaoh, Suddenly, he came around the corner of the table and threw himself on top of me. It was very fast. Moonves began trying to kiss her. Jones said that she struggled and then shoved Moonves away hard, yelling, What do you think you're doing? When Jones got to the door, it was locked. She was terrified. If you don't open this door, she told him, I am going to scream so loud and so long that everyone on the lot is going to come over. Moonves then apparently was able to unlock the door from another part of the room. As Jones fled, she began to get understandably distraught, recognizing it was this well-thought-out thing. Not long after this horrible meeting, Jones received a call from Moonvez's assistant, who said that she had Moonvez on the line. My heart went into my feet, Jones recalled. Moonves began shouting at her. People's reputations are important. Do you understand? I'm warning you, I will ruin your career. You will never get a writing job. No one will hire you. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? Joan says she hung up the phone, then threw up. She recalled thinking, this person could stop me from doing this passion, this career I had spent my whole life putting together. It's kind of hard to fathom that one person could do that, but he could. Ronan Farrow writes in the second New Yorker article, one of the women with allegations against Moonves, a veteran television executive named Phyllis Golden Gottlieb, filed a criminal complaint late last year with the Los Angeles Police Department, accusing Moonves of physically restraining her and forcing her to perform oral sex on him, and of exposing himself to her and violently throwing her against the wall in later incidents. The two worked together in the late 1980s. Law enforcement sources found Golden Gottlieb's allegations credible and consistent, but prosecutors declined to pursue charges because of the statute of limitations for the crimes had expired. I did a bit of research, and in the state of California, the statute of limitations for sexual assault was 10 years, until 2016. Governor Jerry Brown removed that limitation and applied it retroactively, but cases that had already expired, like Phyllis's, are ineligible for legal action. Ronan writes Golden Gottlieb worked with Moonfez at the television production company Laura Mar Telepictures in the 1980s. She was already an industry veteran who had held senior positions at NBC, MGM, and Disney. Golden Gottlieb, who is now in her early 80s and retired, said that the first incident in which Moonves assaulted her occurred in 1986 when he was in charge of movies and miniseries at Warner, and she was the head of comedy development. Moonves, she recalled, came into her office in the middle of a workday and suggested the two of them go out for lunch. Instead of taking her to a nearby restaurant, she said, Moonves drove her to a secluded area. When Golden Gottlieb began to ask if he was having trouble finding a parking space, She said that Moonves grabbed my head and he took it all the way down onto his penis and pushed his penis into my mouth. She said he held her head in place forcibly. He came very quickly, she recalled. You sort of go numb. You don't know what to do. Distraught, Golden Gottlieb demanded that Moonves take her back to the office. When she got there, she said, she vomited. I was just sick, she said to Ronan. She didn't report the incident at the time because she was a single mother supporting two children and feared for her career. I realized he was the new golden boy. I just kept quiet, but the incident never left me. She said that she had avoided being alone with Moonves whenever possible in the period after the first assault. In early 1988, she entered Moonves' office to discuss a work matter, and he said that he was going to get a glass of wine. He left briefly, and when he returned, she said, He was not wearing pants and was aroused. She turned away, embarrassed, and ran out of the room. The following day, Moonves approached her in her office and berated her for not sending a memo to another executive. When she told Moonves that she didn't typically share her memos with that executive, he became enraged, she recalled. He reached over and pulls me up and throws me, I mean hard, against the wall. Afterwards, she said, She collapsed and couldn't get up, lying on the floor, just crying. After she rebuffed Moonves, Golden Gottlieb said that Moonves retaliated against her professionally, moving her into ever-smaller offices. Every two days, he'd find a darker space or a place downstairs or something, she recalled. She confided with Ronan that her career in the entertainment industry suffered, which she attributed to his influence at Walmart. And, later, CBS. He absolutely ruined my career, she said. He was the head of CBS. No one was going to take me. Golden Gottlieb said that even years later, she is still frightened of Moonfest. But she said that her determination to pursue criminal charges was galvanized by the women speaking about sexual harassment and assault as part of the hashtag MeToo movement. They gave me courage, she said. I saw everyone coming out. I had to. And this is why having both a platform and the support of a movement is so important. That's how we can really break these cases open and see change, like Moonves and Jeff Fager getting fired. Ronan continues, Sources familiar with the CBS board's activities said that Moonves was informed of Golden Gottlieb's complaint to the Los Angeles Police Department in the fall. He did not disclose the existence of the criminal investigation to a number of CBS board members until several months later. The full board was not informed, and Moonves was allowed to continue running the company. They don't care about me. I can't do anything for them, Golden Gottlieb told Pharaoh. The whole world is only about money, nothing else. And I think that quote helps illustrate some of the damage this kind of abuse can do. Women like Golden Gottlieb have lost their faith in humanity
3: interrupting RSS feed in order to continue education on the waves of feminism. This lesson covers second wave feminism, and is quoted from TheMagazine.com. Women's participation in World War II and the civil rights movement were precursors to the second wave of feminism, which occurred during the 1960s and 70s. This wave of feminism is defined by its dedication to social and economic justice. First-wave feminism was primarily dedicated to politics, but second-wave feminism encouraged women to fight for equality in all aspects of society, including the household. Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex and Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique were two seminal books that influenced this feminist ideology. By the 1960s, the women's movement began to split into two groups, equal rights feminists, than radical feminists. The former wanted equality in the workplace and home, while the latter was dedicated to a more radical shift in patriarchal society. Equal rights feminists sought policies like anti-discrimination laws in the job market, whereas radical feminists looked past policies and sought to deconstruct gender roles and start a literal feminist revolution. In 1969, The National Organization for Women organized the Congress to unite women in an attempt to reconcile the differences, but neither side understood one another. For example, radical feminists like Adrienne Rich were outraged that equal rights feminists did not recognize lesbian existence. Furthermore, there was a huge gap in age, class, and race between the two groups. Equal rights feminists were primarily older white women, whereas radical feminists were more diverse, though they were primarily white as well. Second-wave feminists did, however, succeed in some ways. A few important wins were the job opportunities created through the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. The increase in divorce rights. The growing number of women running for political office. The passage of Title IX and the Roe v. Wade decision which legalized abortion. Additionally, second-wave feminism led to a change in attitudes about the role of women in society, so they were able to work outside the home and subvert their gender roles. I will now allow you to return to your regularly scheduled program for now. The long list of
0: accusations continues with Deborah Morris. This testimony is also from the second New Yorker article. In the late 1980s, Deborah Morris was a junior executive working at Lormar. One evening, she told Vero, Moonvez asked her to come to his office to discuss several projects. The two spoke about work matters briefly before Moonves asked, what do you want? Confused, Morris asked what he meant. Moonves, as she recalled the conversation, said, you know, where do you live? What kind of stuff do you want? He mentioned televisions and cars as examples. I didn't take it seriously. I didn't think anybody could be that corrupt, she said. It was something you saw in the movies or on TV. And later I realized, this absolutely does exist. Moonves offered her a glass of wine. She declined, but he insisted. It's just a little glass of wine. Come on, she recalled him saying. As Moonves began to drink, Morris, growing nervous, excused herself to get a cigarette from her office. Walking back, she noticed a security guard and thought she could call for help if necessary. I went back to his office. What a fool, she told Ronan. She sat on Moonvez's couch, and all of a sudden, he was next to me, she told Pharaoh. He said, how about a kiss? I said no, and he said, no, come on, how about a kiss? It's nothing. How about a little kiss? Moonves drew closer to Morris, and she said, although he's not a big person, there was something looming in his actions. He knew how to win people over, and then that would turn very quickly to if you didn't give him what he wanted, this threatening feeling from him. Morris said she then bolted. Morris, along with three friends and relatives she confided in at the time, said that Moonvez continued his advances over the following months. One night, Morris said, Moonvez offered to drive her to her car as they walked out of the office after dark. The two were in his Porsche with Morris in the passenger seat, when she said, All of a sudden, he stops the car and grabs me. Holding Morris by both shoulders, Moonves pulled her toward him in what she took to be an attempt to force a kiss. My left arm swung and hit him across the chest, she said. It was just instinct. Moonves stopped, appearing momentarily shocked. Morris scrambled out of the car and ran. Immediately after the incident, Morris told her best friend at the time, her sister, and her sister's husband, what had happened. All three confirmed her account. After that encounter, Morris said, Moonvez refused to speak to her, and she was frozen out of meetings at Lorimar. I was hung out to dry, she said, and that was pretty much the end of my career. I wasn't going to get a reference. Morris discussed the possibility of filing a formal complaint against Moonvez with acquaintances in the company's legal and human resources departments without naming her harasser. Both discouraged her. Who's going to believe you? You're no one, she recalled her contact in the legal department saying. Morris added, and these were both women. Morris left the entertainment industry and moved to the Bay Area, later taking jobs in technology and healthcare. Morris said that Moonvez's response to last month's allegations of sexual abuse, proclaiming his commitment to the principle of no means no, had frustrated her. She had told Moonvez no numerous times but said he continued his advances. His statement was incredible. Absolutely incredible. It made me sick, she told Ronan. He's cunning, he's calculating, and he's a predator. It's clear by now that much like a serial killer, Moonvez has a modus operandi. He isolates women who he has a position of power over, offers them wine, and then sexually assaults them. If they refuse him, he ruins their career. If they acquiesce, He takes that one event as consent for whatever he wants to do in the future. He's truly despicable. The fifth accuser, a prominent actress who played a police officer on a long-running CBS program who was too frightened of reprisals to use a name, said that she also attended a business meeting with Moonves that ended in unwanted advances. In 1995, when Moonves became president of CBS Entertainment, the actress called to congratulate him. He said, You should have fucked me when I asked you to. And I said, No shit. They both laughed. Soon afterward, CBS Business Affairs informed the actress that her series deal with CBS was being terminated. She called Moonves and expressed shock. He requested a lunch meeting in his private dining room at the office. She told Ferro, I went in, I thought, to make a deal. At the lunch... Moonves told her that he intended to focus on younger talent and that she was too old. Then he said, I've always been so attracted to you. This actor then says, I was so upset. I said, Jesus, Leslie, I'm gonna go. Then when she went to leave, she walked over to give him a kiss on the cheek. Moonvez, she said, grabbed her and forcibly kissed her. He shoved his tongue down my throat. I mean shoved. Appalled, she pushed him away. He had approached me to go to bed with him twice but he did it politely. But this time, he just stuck his tongue down my throat. As she left, she began to cry. No one had ever done that to me before. I found it sickening. The actress said that she never worked for CBS again. This concludes the first part of our piece on Les Moonfest. Next episode, we'll hear seven more testimonies of allegations that took place during the 90s and early arts. But right now, let's hear from our sponsor. Are you an easy target? Do you find yourself the butt of jokes? Do you get picked on by comedians? Then do we have the product for you. Larry's Singers. By reading this book, we guarantee a 60% increase in witty retorts and a whopping 80% boost to your ability to think on your feet. That one's literal. We encourage you to take walks while you brainstorm comebacks. Here are some classics from the chapter on dealing with jerk-faced comedians. Disclaimer, here with clarity. We never condone heckling. If a performer is giving me a hard time, bait the comedian into saying, Oh, you're so funny? Why don't you come up here and tell a joke? I like to open by addressing the audience with, Hi, I'm Larry. You can call me. But I hope I never hear from this guy again. <laughs> Make sure you pause for a beat. Be confident and follow that up with, most comedians are seeking validation, but this guy takes it to extremes. If no one pays for his parking, he won't be able to leave. <laughs> and make sure you close out with a bang. i do a mic drop, but then this guy might pick it up again.